0: Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code MAYFLOWERS, one word, to receive your discount. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code MAYFLOWERS. Thank you for your support. 9 12 10 28 2 23 This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, as usual, David Rothkoff, coming to you from Cambridge, Massachusetts, uh, we are joined today by two of the very, very best, most thoughtful columnists in the whole world, uh, Jen Rubin and EJ Dion of the Washington Post. Welcome, both of you.
1: Good to be with you. Thank we, you. We I was come. going to say the same of you, David. And, <laughs> and thank
2: you. We should come on your air all the time. That's very sweet of you. Thank you.
0: <laughs> well, uh, you should. Um, but I'm going to do something that's a little unfair and a little difficult. Um, I've just been, you know, Every time I do a podcast, and I do a bunch every week, I go and immerse myself in newspapers and, and the Twitterverse. But this week, uh, we, we were doing a tryout. We're, we're about to launch, we think, with somebody else, a podcast aimed at the under-30 crowd, trying to get them more interested in foreign policy, public policy. And uh, the question that we did in a little study group um that you know we said you know what what would be appealing to this group and and almost everybody came back to one thing that you know they came back to their friends asking the question why are things like this i mean they put it in a variety of ways right they said how did things get so fucked up you know <laughs> and, and 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 so on but in each of their ways that you know you have people entering the workforce and and jen you know congratulations we just heard you have a uh a child who just graduated from college we all we all do we all have you know our kids out there the first question when they look at the way washington works or doesn't work and american politics works or doesn't work to say nothing of the rest of the world is how did we get here and i'd like to talk about that a little bit uh jen you 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 did a column recently on you know Ron DeSantis and his commitment to ignorance um you know that is that his big idea is let's make Florida stupid, and then once we're done with that, let's see if we can do the same thing for the united states how do you How do you get there in twenty twenty
1: three well I- Obviously, there's no one simple answer, but I think there has been a gradual process by which one of the major parties has descended into right wing populism, nationalism, if you will, even fascism. And this didn't all happen under Donald Trump's watch, but he certainly accelerated the process. And The decline of the party was in many ways um, promoted, enabled by some failures in the political system and even the economic system. One being really a general failure of the mainstream media to grasp the essential change in politics, that we were no longer dealing with two political parties operating within the democratic process each advancing a agenda that intended to make life better for americans so that was one terrible um failure um i think another was um the you know what um has been called the great sort that we have become so uh not polarized i don't think that's the right word because that denotes an equal alienation but separated from one another that We now have a country in which it's possible for millions of people to live in these enclaves of red America and be rather ignorant about the world and be supportive of policies that frankly are harmful to themselves. You look at red America and you look at healthcare, you look at death from gun violence, you look at virtually any measure, and it's as if they're creating a third world country within America. And that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy and a um, really sort of inevitable downward spiral for many states, which is part of what I wrote about um, regarding Ron DeSantis. And I also think that we've come to a time where our citizenry has become passive, even lazy. Um, you can fault the education system, you can fault, um, a general sense of prosperity when things are good and life is good. Why do you need to brush up on the fine parts of policy or even turn out to vote? And I think all of these things are contributing factors, but I will come back to one essential issue that remains at the heart of all of this. And that is the original sin of America, which is race. And we have never grappled with this. When we get into difficulties, um, race becomes a pivot point, a dividing factor. And the more we ignore it and the more we allow um, voices of intolerance, of bigotry, of white nationalism to fester, the worse the problem becomes. I just returned from vacation, partially in the Netherlands. and. It- Always a fascinating experience, of course, traveling. You learn more about your own country. And throughout the Netherlands, you see a very concerted attempt in museums, in public debate, in um, the press, to grapple with its colonial past. And although the Dutch take great pride in the golden age of the Netherlands and their great achievements, There is a real effort to wrestle with the fact that this was built on a colonial foundation, which exploited uh, and brutalized people. We've never done that here. And so when we get into these downward spirals and we allow people um, to reassort this noxious idea that America is defined by race um, and by religion, we find ourselves in real, real trouble. And um I'm more optimistic now than I was a year or so ago, um, in part because I think President Biden has really done a remarkable job despite the press coverage. Um, but this problem continues to fester, and the factors that you know accelerated the Republican decline into madness have not abated.
0: Yeah, that's a really, really uh, thought-provoking set of comments and uh, clearly, one of the goals of DeSantis and and, and the GOP now is not to uh, uh, learn about our past, in fact, to suppress it and to keep children from learning about it. Uh, for recently, for other reasons, I've been reading a lot about the history of the indigenous peoples who lived in this part of the world. And we're in complete denial about that. And that, in fact, we were a colonial power. We conquered other parts of the world and, 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 and were extraordinarily brutal. Um, uh, EJ, you talk about this, and I know from knowing you that you grapple with it from a variety of different philosophical perspectives, including those associated with our, our sort of religious grounding in this country. You did an interesting column not too uh, long ago about a conversation you had with Nancy Pelosi. Contrasting her deep, deep religious convictions um, with her representing San Francisco, a place that is, you know is sort of on the the bleeding edge of of progressivism in the United States, what's your answer to the question, uh,
2: why? Well, first of all, on that Pelosi interview, it was really a fun and fascinating. Uh, interview because she supports, first of all, she doesn't like the word tolerance because she thinks it's a negative word. And she insisted on openness, embrace, respect. And uh, her whole view on these matters, on LGBTQ issues, on racial equality, on class equality, uh, is that we're all God's children. And it all descends from there, or ascends, if I could, from there. And it was a really fascinating chat. I want to be, if I may, a bit more hopeful perhaps than Jen, partly because of where I'm sitting today. Right now, I'm in my office at Georgetown. I'm about this afternoon to be part of the graduation at the McCourt School of Public Policy here. And if you hang around a lot on college campuses uh, or have kids, I think is another part of it, I think you get pretty hopeful about the long term and that I always tell my kids that when their generation takes over, a much more gener- diverse generation, by the way, than the one I'm part of, um, I'm really not worried about the country and that when my generation is gone, I think we'll be better off. And the only problem with my theory is I want to be around to see it uh, when it happens. And I do think that when you look at some of these divides, there is a really deep generational cleavage, sort of under 45 or under 40 and over 45, somewhere around there, maybe 50 now. It depends on where you want to put it. Um, And I think we've gone through an enormous amount of social change in our country over the last 40 or 50 years. Uh, We've gone through large-scale demographic change. One of my favorite stats is in 1970, only 4.6% of us were foreign born. Now 14% of us are foreign born. It's just like we were around 1910. And guess what? There was a big backlash against that in the 20s. We passed really reactionary um, uh, immigration legislation uh, in the 20s. And it took until 1965 really to reverse all of that. Um, We've seen the backlash on race. I agree with Jen very much that uh, we have been grappling with some success and then some setbacks on race. And I think of this in a way as a backlash against the second Reconstruction, that we had the Civil War, we had Reconstruction, Black Americans in the South were enfranchised. It was actually a great victory that was later presented in history as, oh, the corruption of Reconstruction. No, the South was democratized. And then there was a violent backlash by white elites and others, Um, that pushed back democracy, created Jim Crow, and it took us till the 64 Voting Rights, Civil Rights Act and the 65 Voting Rights Act to get out of it. And now I think we're going through something like that backlash that happened after the first Reconstruction. We gotta struggle our way through that. Um, but on your long question, I I think that, you know, we could take hours talking about developments on the right that I think were unfortunately a steady march toward this radicalism. And I didn't fully see it. I saw some of it as it was going on. But whether you begin with Nixon's Southern strategy, move to Reagan beginning uh, his campaign in Mississippi at the site where civil rights workers were killed, but it was more subtle than And Reagan was never, you know, was not overtly racist. So he did use phrases like welfare queens, which sure carry a lot of baggage. Then you get to the Gingrich era, which was another kind of push toward radicalism. Um, I want to shout out Matt Dalek's new book on the Birch Society, uh, John Birch Society in the 50s and early 60s, where a lot of the ideas we're seeing now g- sort of come out of uh, Birchism. And then you had the backlash against immigration. And I always like to say the Trump campaign in some ways began when Republicans in Congress killed George W. Bush's immigration reform. Uh, where that was the signal of what was coming, and then of course you had um, the you know the attacks on Obama rooted in lies about where he was born and is he a secret Muslim and all that, and that led to Trump. So I think we've gone through this progression on the right uh, that has led the Republican Party and the right wing to a very unfortunate place. And I am not a conservative, but there are brands of sort of Burkean conservatism that I respect and you know I think conservatives are useful sometimes we progressives need to be called out or our ideas are impractical there are there is a you know a real role for conservatives in politics uh but I think that there's not a role uh, or it's a, it's mainly a destructive role when it's this sort of extremist uh radicalism and uh, I think it's just been a long path that the uh, Republicans of the right have taken. I guess I wrote I, I should shout out my own I wrote a book called Why the Right Went Wrong. So this is very much a something that I really care about and think is very unfortunate for our country.
1: I would also say that it you know, this aspect of American society has floated around um for you know, long before the Republican Party really kind of lost its marbles, um, whether it was the know nothings, whether it was the 1920s, as you analogized, as you mo- uh, mentioned, uh, regarding both the Red Scare and a fear of immigration, um, you know, this lurks beneath the, the surface um, and sometimes not even below the surface. And there are times where it catches fire, it ignites. Um, and um, I think. You know, under um, certainly um, the Obama administration, the vision of the first African-American president so incensed these elements that they really kind of lost it. Um, and that this was the symbol of the um, changing demographics, the loss of white Christian uh, Protestant um, control, um, and that although many of us just thought they were nuts um, and kind of off their rocker when it came to um, birtherism, that was really the the primal sense for these people. Where you see it's a through line all the way to Tucker Carlson to, you know, uh, Donald Trump, of this um, sort of raging hysteria about um, an America that they don't feel at home in, which really means that they don't control. I I would also add that we have seen a horrible disintegration of the courts, a financial corruption and intellectual corruption that has done immense damage. And that while the Federalist Society was churning out um, people who um, had an ideology that on its face was somewhat plausible, the natural result of that was a change in the judicial structure such that um, many of these difficult, horrible um, developments um, are now being solidified by the federal judiciary. And that is a long-term problem. I have urged my Democratic friends to get much more serious about court reform, um, about filibuster reform, because um, that remains one of the most dangerous, I think, minority rule, um, anti democratic, sl- slow D, you know, small d developments that makes all of this much, much worse.
2: I, I think I'd be remiss if I didn't say this because I think it's so important as part of this. Um, we've had a long, slow decline in the fortunes of the middle class and working class in our countries, black, white, Latino, uh, and that. Um, it you know began with a long growth of uh, of income inequality in the eighties, but then it was really accelerated by globalization, deindustrialization, uh, the crash of uh, two thousand seven, two thousand eight, two thousand eight, two thousand nine, uh, which sent a lot of people into foreclosure. Lots of people in the country had to trade thirty an hour job, dollar an hour jobs for ten dollar an hour uh, jobs, and it's a regional inequality that is really damaging to the country. Um, Joe Biden carried about 450 counties, Donald Trump carried about 2,500. Joe Biden's counties represented 70% of our GDP, according to a study from uh, Brookings. So while I do believe it's clear race and immigration and all of that are very much part of Trump's appeal, this has taken place in a context Where there is a lot of anger out there. And I think, by the way, given the racial divisions, there's a real irony here because William J. Wilson, the great sociologist, wrote about how deindustrialization was um, impoverishing the inner city as job opportunities dried up. In the industrial economy. That's exactly what started happening in places, you know, in industrial towns like the one I grew up in, in places in Pennsylvania, Michigan, Ohio. And it's so that people who are now on opposite sides of politics, in economic terms, a lot of them suffered from some of the same forces that we didn't redress. And I really like, I've always had a soft spot for Biden because I like Scranton Joe. Uh, and I don't know if he can pull it off or not, but I think one of the good things about Biden is he understands in his bones uh, what has happened to a lot of people in this country, including people who voted against him, uh, and probably will vote
1: against him again. I think for that reason, E.J., one of the most critical things he is doing, he says it, and I think we don't completely grasp it is he really is transforming the American economy by this influx of investment, both private uh, and public, in tech, in infrastructure. And he is addressing, I think, exactly that deindustrialization, economic decline that you saw when you see chip plants, when you see huge infrastructure projects going into these places, that is the capacity as he likes to put it, to grow the economy from the bottom up and the middle out, and if it works, it will be really a triumph of, frankly, economic industrial policy, um, which uh, the conservative in me um, was doubtful about to put it mildly. But nevertheless, you have to recognize success when you see it, and that in turn, I think, will have a political implication as well as you say, EJ, because if people um, who don't go to college were the substantial majority of Americans see a pathway towards economic prosperity, success, um, stability, that will um, drain away a lot of this anger, a lot of this venom from the political demagogues who use it to gin up the country.
0: So I I, want to continue with this. It's fascinating discussion. I would point out on the last point, uh Jen, as somebody who came up in the Clinton administration, which was kind of Reagan light, you know, we were embracing a lot of a lot of the policies of the time. Uh in retrospect, it's clear to me that these things got all muddled together. Uh and the idea of leaving it to the markets, you know, which is really became economic Darwinism, may not have been more conservative. Uh and I'll give you an example, and that is That uh, in the 2008-2009 financial crisis, a couple of auto companies nearly went bankrupt, right? General Motors was one of them. Uh, But because we don't have social safety net in the United States, we had to bail out General Motors, uh, lest a million people be put into the streets. In Sweden, Saab went bankrupt. Because they have a social safety net, they allowed Saab to go bankrupt. So, which is the more conservative approach? Which one allows more to the markets? Um, uh, you have to recognize that the companies and markets exist to serve society. And when they stop serving society, that becomes a problem.
1: I think that's a brilliant point. Brilliant point. Um, and I think you see it again when you travel. You know Republicans love to bang on Western Europe. Um, but a country like the Netherlands has a higher Per capita GDP, higher uh, income. The I think the um, per capita average there's about fifty-seven thousand, much higher than the United States. Um, Is that a more successful economic system or is it ours? There's trade-offs. We have this wealth-creating machine. We have an inequality-creating machine. We have an innovation-creating machine, but it comes at a huge cost. And the question is, do we really need all that, um, incentive for wealth creation. Do we, I have maintained for a very long time, we, the, the rich and corporate market is vastly undertaxed, um, that we have made, um, a, really a hash out of our, um, Public um, spending. Um, You only have to spend a couple of weeks on European trains to realize that, um, you know, America is about a third world country when it comes to um, getting from one city to the next. Um, But there are trade offs. And I think Biden is a perfect example of the adage that if you want progressive gains, elect a moderate. (laughs) And if you want um, to see capitalism, flourish, elect a Democrat. And if you want to see the debt go down, probably elect a Democrat as well. So it's it's a fascinating uh, experiment as we um, fear for our lives and for our democracy. But he's been remarkably successful. I know that's unpopular in the press, but it's it's extraordinary in some respects.
0: Well, it's, it's you know, in some respects, it's not an experiment because in the Netherlands and in Northern Europe, they've been doing this for a long time. And not only do they have a high per capita income, but nobody goes bankrupt from paying their medical bills.
2: And then, could I just say, David, I'm, I'm a social democratic part and, um, and I think you basically defended the social democratic position very well, which is the market has its role, but the market can't dominate society. Um, But I do want to shout out the bailout, the the rescue of the auto industry. I've always thought it's ironic that in the end, one of the most popular policies that helped reelect Barack Obama was the closest thing to a socialist policy. Obviously, the government didn't take over General Motors, but everybody who criticized it said this is socialism. Um, And that really saved the Midwestern economy because it wasn't just, as you suggested, GM that was going to go out. It was all the suppliers. It was a whole infrastructure of the economy that would have collapsed if we had not done uh, GM and Chrysler. Uh, and we don't really think about that much anymore because it worked. Uh, we should think more about things that work.
0: Yeah. No. There's no. There's no question about that. I, I was really trying to get at the point. Uh, I once wrote a book. You know how you write books. You know you write books. You know and you you know that you know they turn out like children. I think in some respects because. One of them becomes your favorite and, and is often ignored by society. And I once wrote a book called Power Inc., which was about the relationship between corporations and governments. And, you know, it begins in Sweden with the oldest corporation that is still in existence in the world. It was called for a long time Stora Koperberg. It was a copper company. Uh, now it's called Stora Enso and is a, a Swedish-Finnish company. Um, but we forget that corporations were created by grants of the government to serve society and that charters and, and, and you know, incorporate, it, that they don't exist to serve purely the shareholders. They exist to serve social purposes. And that's something we've completely forgotten here. This is the point in our podcast where we typically take a little bit of a break and say to our uh, Listeners and the general public, isn't this a great discussion? Don't you want to hear the rest of it? Um, uh, And so you should become a member. Go to the DSRnetwork.com. Click on membership. It's $5 a month. We have, as anybody who's following us knows, an expanding roster of podcasts, nine or 10 a week plus our daily podcast. And so being a member, you get a lot of value. So go to that, join us, and then you can hear the rest. When I get into a really controversial dimension of this. For now, though, if you're in the general public, I say bye-bye, and if you're a member, I say stand by.